also, uh, what? How should I address you? Todd, Misha. Misha is fine. Okay, Misha. Yeah. And that's also like a, a Russian origin name, right? Yeah, and it, it's actually the diminutive. Uh, the 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 full version is Mikhail or Michael in English. Ah, I see. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I I go by the diminutive of my name. I, I go by the the familiar version of my name. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it sounds good, Misha. It's very easy to say. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so um, I'll tell you the same thing I told Dr. Jones, which is. Um, well, I'm going to be even more explicit this time. Sure. Uh, this, is not, this is not my show, <laughs> and you're okay. not my guest. We're just two people having a conversation. So if at any time you want to say something, interrupt me, that's totally fine. Okay. Um, also, um, I mean, I guess it technically is my show, but yeah. I'm, I don't think about it like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> You're you're the one who will get the the nasty uh, notification from YouTube, not me. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. We're, we're in this together here, so for sure, I like that idea. Oh yeah, yes, good. Um, oh man, what else? Uh, oh yeah, also we're um, I'm recording this, but we're not live. So okay. please speak freely, say whatever you like. If we do get into profanity or something, we can bleep it later, and that's no problem. Okay. Yeah, I, I avoid profanity, but sure, sounds good. Okay, so I'm mostly talking to myself, and that's okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to uh, be less profane, and uh, I'm getting better, but, you know, old, old habits die hard. <laughs> yeah, I, I was there too. It wasn't until I had kids that I really capped down on it. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> Great. So um so our topic is food. Yeah. An excellent super practical topic. So I like this. Yeah. And and it becomes political. It it has to it, as as all important things inevitably are. So yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, yeah. And uh so you have experience here and uh professional experience in other ways. So please Start out by, uh, you know, you can introduce yourself a little bit. And I'm mostly curious, how did you get into uh, inspecting food? How did that start for you? Well, I, uh, I grew up on an organic grain farm in Saskatchewan up in Canada. And we were organic before the, the government was really even aware of it or recognizing it. Um, so that was back in the early 90s. And then in the late 90s, um, by then I had graduated college, had my first job, a, a union job with a, a, a hydro company. I didn't really like that. And uh, uh, so I got into farm inspecting. And ironically, I have a degree in history, and that certainly wasn't applicable to my union job. And, and well, uh, the way I looked at it, well, being a far, farm inspector was no worse. I mean, there, there's no application for a history degree if you really get down to it. But I, as I thought at the time, well, I, I can do no worse, you know, it, when it comes to uh, <laughs> failing to apply my four years of academia. <laughs> so I went into, yeah, I went into, sort of went back to what I had grown up with, farming, and became a, a USDA contract farm inspector. 
Um, so being Canadian, I had to fly down to the States to get trained. And, uh, and at the time, the Canadian government, they, they were really late getting into the organic game, which is sort of a good thing, uh, ironically. Uh, the less government, the better. But, but yeah, it, at the time, um, the only way to become an organic inspector was to go to the United States. So I was back in around 98, 99. And I did that for five years, uh, inspecting on both sides of the border. Okay, and uh, what happened at the end of the five years? Well, sort of throughout the five years, uh, there was less and less actual inspection going on. Uh, right from the, the get-go, even when I was still on the farm, I remember inspectors coming to our farm and Silly me, uh, just being a dumb farm boy, I said, well, when are you going to do the test? You know, you're an inspector, are you going to do a test? And they just looked at me. And it wasn't until I, I, even when I went to find out about becoming an inspector, that was my first question. When, uh, you know, do we, do we become accredited as sample collection, you know, people? Because uh, to, to be a policeman... And in to, to investigate a crime scene, you know, you always see on TV, there's the uniform cops and they're just standing there, right? They don't, they don't do anything because they're not qualified. And then you got the guys come in, they're not in uniform. And, and if you watch uh, some like CSI, they're, they're the groovy guys, you know, with the ripped t-shirt because they can dress how <laughs> they want. And yeah, they come in and they collect the blood samples. Well, there, there, there's actually a process. I'm sort of making fun of it. But there's a process by which you become a, uh, accredited to take samples, whether it's a crime scene or uh, a Olympic athletes. There, there's, a, there's a process involved. And it's basically, it's boring stuff, but it's important. It's, it's chain of custody because that's how the defense will always get you in court. They'll say, did this sample leave your custody? You know, if you're a policeman and you put it in the trunk, but then you went to get a donut, that's it. Forget it. The, the guy's going to walk now because you went to get a donut. And, and for all you know, someone broke into your car while you were getting, you know, it's ridiculous, but that, that's how it works. So, so there I was finally becoming an inspector and silly me, I thought that's what we were going to do. And um, so to answer your question, you said, what happened at the end? Well, it was throughout, Alex. Throughout the five years, I kept saying, hey, are, aren't we going to, and they told me when I became an inspector, well, no, we don't do that. Um, but I still clung to this idea, well, we will do that. You know, we're just starting out here. It's only 1998 and uh, the organic industry is worth, you know, a few, few million dollars instead of billions that it's worth today. And so, I, yeah, I thought, well, well, we'll get to that. The industry will mature. And it never did. It never did. The opposite happened. There was more and more paperwork, and the, the, uh, the, the best example I can give is Bernie Madoff. He pulled off the, the largest Ponzi scheme in history. He made Ponzi look like, uh, like a rookie, right? The guy we named the Ponzi scheme after. Uh, yeah, Bernie Madoff had the best records. Just remember that. He, had, he, he, was, he was hired by colleges to give uh, lectures to business grads on the importance of keeping up on your security and exchange commission paperwork. And he would, he would tell you how it makes you a, a better financial broker if you keep up. Well, you know, that was the, turns out that was the only thing he did was keep up on his paperwork. So yeah, it, I, I'm sort of embarrassed, Alex, that it took me five years <laughs> to, to finally give up on this. And I, I realized that they're never going to do testing. They're, they're just going to rely more and more on, on paperwork. 
And, and uh, to dovetail with that, that just opened the door to uh, cheap imports. And that, that I think, is, is as big an issue when it comes to uh, the quality of your food. So explain the connection there. How does uh, cheap imports and uh, lack of real inspecting, how are those connected? Yeah, so at, so at the start, 100% of organic food in the late 90s and early 1000s, 100% of it was not only domestic, but probably local, you know, probably within your state or, or county. Um, but yeah, when you just rely on paperwork, um, well then, like the Bernie Madoffs get into the business. And now, um, by my calculation, it's over 80% of the organic food is imported. So as you probably know, America's export nation when it comes to food. Like we export beef and pork, uh, all, the, all the cereal crops, all the, the staple crops. We're ex- we don't import eat like one bushel. We import things like coffee and pineapples that, that we can't grow. Uh, or cane sugar, right? Uh, But everything else America exports. Well, not in the organic industry. And and that's, you know, that's an an irony of ironies because, as I said, when it started out, it was not only domestic, but it was was really local. Um, And now it's the, it's just fallen. It's like, it's it's like your your wife should be the one person you can trust, but then you find out she's not only cheating on you, but she's working for the CIA, and you've been married for ten years. How did I miss this? Yeah, it's just the biggest slap in the face, really. Because again, just to repeat it, eighty percent by my calculation, eighty percent is being imported. Uh, so so yeah, that that's a symptom of the fact that there's no testing. If there was some actual scrutiny. Well, then that, that, that Chinese shipment of uh, flaxseed might not make it into America <laughs> if, it, if it was tested in the field. Yeah, it might, might have been. Oh, okay. I yeah. see. I see. Yeah. But also, they, so, yeah. So the, the imported organics, they're not tested either. Right. And then finally, okay. after I left, uh, Obama appointed a really good guy. I'm not a fan of Obama, but he appointed a, a good guy to run the USDA national organic program. And he did, I knew of him before, because he, he was the only guy in, in, in uh, all of the Americas to have testing at the Washington State uh, Department program. He did do some testing. And so when he went to Washington, D.C., from Washington State, I thought, well, he's going to bring testing. He didn't until the last year, or maybe it was the second last year of his term. So he was there for eight years with Obama. And what he did, Alex, this is where people say, well, Misha's wrong. There is testing. But hang on. Listen to this. So first of all, I worked on contract, right? So do all the the certifying bodies. They're all private contractors. The the USDA doesn't do anything. It's not like a police force. The USDA, when it comes to organics, they act as sort of the overseeing body for the police forces. And there's 80 of them. They're all private. I worked for like 20 of them. Um, over my time. Um, those agents, they're called, they're required <clears throat> to test 5% of their clients every year, just 5%. And they get to pick who they test. Oh, geez. So if they're, and now we have to add in, they get paid. The USDA doesn't pay them. The client is paying them. So if you have a, you know, a 10-acre farmer in Nebraska, well, first of all, he's in Nebraska, so he's way easier to test. 
you can you can like for a few hundred bucks you can send an inspector out who's accredited to collect the sample, send it into an accredited lab, and there you go. They they have <coughs> satisfied the the requirement of testing five percent of their client base. Meanwhile, they have a multi million dollar shipment of organic flax coming in from China. Well, it's very troublesome for them to send an inspector over there to to collect the sample. But more importantly, why do they want to jeopardize their that million dollar client? They don't care about the ten mm. acre farmer in Nebraska. So it's a headcount thing. To qualify for five percent, it has nothing to do with volume or dollar amount. It's just if they have a hundred clients, they just test the bottom five who are probably going to be local market gardeners. And and those guys don't cheat anyway, so the results are going to be clean. And there you go, they've yeah. sat and that that guy's name, by the way, it, it's uh, Miles McAvoy. I still think he's a good guy. I still think he, just the very fact that he tried to do that, he, he deserves uh, he deserves credit. But you, you know, it's it's like you, you go to Washington and and you become part of the the machine, or or they destroy you. They don't just fire you. They they would have destroyed him. So that I think that was that's uh, that's indicative of how corrupt the system is. That that was all he could do, Alex, is get certifiers to test 5% of their clients and they got to choose who they tested. Yeah, that 5% is an unbelievably low number. That's yeah. just... Yeah. Even before you get into all the other, you know, human nature, you know, they're not going to upset the million dollar client. You're, you're right. Just just that alone, 5% is is ridiculous. So do you think if we had some, you know, legitimate and rigorous uh, testing for organic foods, I mean, I'm assuming our American farmers would, would put up high quality products and the Chinese and a lot of other imported organic food, it probably sucks in quality if it's even organic. Yeah. So do you, do you think that uh, economics is not my strong suit, but I'm guessing that at least that 80% number would start to come down, right? Yeah, like you'd think it would be. I remember when it crossed the 50-50 threshold. It was after I left. Um, the, the professional body I belonged to, it was called the Independent Organic Inspectors Association. I was on the board. Uh, I was a senior inspector, and uh, I had trained other inspectors and organized trainings. Well, they, they changed the letter I in their, in their name from independent, to international and that was around oh. 04, 05 and I just thought wow you know in a way they're actually being honest because what they would do is go around the world and train they would send one senior inspector to China with a translator and they would train Chinese inspectors to do the USDA paperwork in China so so now that the, the Chinese commune you know the multi-thousand acre commune with all these Chinese serfs working on it, they, they, would, they would sort of have one bureaucratic bottleneck to, to go through. But, but yeah, to answer your question, if they, were, if they, if they tightened up the system and were, uh, were testing, that, that would go away. Um, but I can see that there's no hope with government. I, I think it has to sort of be a, a private thing. I think we're, um, like Jeff Bezos, he bought Whole Foods, and you can bet he's relying even more on cheap imports now to yeah. stock the shelves. But if a guy like that, it's obviously not going to be Jeff Bezos, but if a guy like that came along and said, um, hey, here's my organic 
you know, grocery store with a thousand chains across America, and everything in this store has been tested. All of a sudden, he would blacken all of his competition. I think that's that's what's going to happen next year or in ten years. I, th- I think that's what that's the only thing that can change this because government won't change. Yeah, that's what I've been learning across the board in every industry. Like government is just more and more powerless, and but it's good because it means we have more power ourselves if we can actually unite and come together and actually, you know, do that. So Yes, that's a very good point. Yeah, there's a silver lining, definitely. Go ahead, yeah. So so getting back to us as private citizens, uh, what can we do? And I guess more specifically, uh, what should we buy or avoid in grocery stores? Well, sadly, um, there's no point buying organic in a grocery store. Uh, You can, because the one thing you can be guaranteed, it's still safe. Now, there have been cases where uh, certified organic product imported from China, Mexico, and Turkey specifically led to E. coli outbreaks, but they've really clamped down on that. Um, So you're at least guaranteed. You see, there's more risk with organic food because you're using manure, as your compost for fertility instead of a synthetic fertilizer. And people don't like synthetic fertilizer, but it's safe. In any case, so, so yeah, they've at least ironed out the safety issues. So you're, you're not going to hurt yourself, but I would, I would really urge you, you're just wasting your money. You might as well just stick with the regular stuff. And if you want organic, to answer your question, you have to find a farmer you know. It has to be a farmer that you meet face-to-face with. You sort of have to be your own inspector. Ah, yeah. That makes perfect sense. If we don't have real inspectors, we need to get our own inspectors. Yeah. 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 That's the only way. Mm. So uh, I went to college in uh, Vermont. I went to UVM in Burlington. And uh, back uh, back then, and I guess still now a little bit, I was into this whole, you know, hippie, organic, local thing. And so I did buy almost entirely organic uh, vegetables and fruits, and I think they did taste a little better. Was I? Uh, do you have any experience with a difference in taste uh, between these things? Well, let's let's put it this way: taste is a function of nutrition. So obviously, if you you taste a peach, it it hopefully will be sweeter, and that's not just an enjoyable thing. That's probably because whatever makes a peach a peach is more, you know, more peachy when it's organic, hopefully. Um, and actually, that's a bad example. Peaches and cherries and strawberries are, are, I really tell people just avoid those organic because there's a really high likelihood someone is cheating, but because they're so hard to grow, even in conventional. But, but with that said, just, so a peach is supposed to be sweet, and if it's sweeter, then it's probably better as a peach. Well, and then broccoli is supposed to be, I don't know, kind of bitter and savory. And yeah, more flavor isn't just an enjoyable thing. It's a sign of, of the nutrition. So that was something, Alex, that was totally lost in all of this. Uh, organic food is supposed to be purer, right? You know, no toxins in it. And by the way, that, that just went out the window. Uh, almost half of the organic food has tested positive for prohibited pesticides. And, and I can explain that, that some people blame it on spray drift. That is not true at all. But in any case, 
that's sort of the first level, right, that people expect when they buy organic. Well, it wasn't sprayed. Um, then the next thing, they want it to be uh, uh, more nutritious. Well, for, forget it. Like, we're, we're not even, no one even talks about that. But you, you just mentioned that. And you, you put it in terms of, of flavor and taste. And I just, I just want to underline that, that is, um, that's, that's a nutritional factor. If it tastes better, it probably is better uh, nutritionally. Mm. Are there any, um, I mean, I have no problem taking your word for this, but uh, the back of my, my head is, is <laughs> maybe it's like my, my mother's voice or something oh. saying, um, are there any like, uh, I guess it depends on what food it is. I guess for whole foods, plants, fruits and vegetables, there isn't some like chemical that you can like put in to make it more sweet or something, right? No, no, that would be more for, for processed foods that they, they right. put flavor enhancers. But, but, you know, the other big thing for processed foods is it's called mouthfeel, mouthfeel. So, so yeah, they, they, put, they put more sugar in. Uh, even if you get a, a, you know, natural strawberry yogurt, it'll usually say that it contains natural and uh, artificial flavor, you know. Yeah. They get you with the, they'll put natural in the front, but then you read the ingredients, it says may contain, because maybe, you know, the strawberries weren't that sweet on that production run, so they added in, a, it's usually got some synthetic flavoring, but yeah, the, the big thing, it's actually in the last 10 years, but most people haven't heard about it, is mouth feel, I'll just say that again, mouth feel, so it's more in uh, yogurt and um, ice cream, and I don't even know what the, the additive is called, but it, it, uh, it makes it feel better in your mouth, silky and smooth. And that's a big thing now. So uh, the organic industry, to its credit, is, uh, is resisting that. Um, there is no organic version of these synthetic chemicals they put in to make it feel good in your mouth. And yeah, so far they, they've resisted that, so good, good for them. But yeah, there, there's no way to spike the flavor of a whole, like a, a grapefruit, or, or a cereal crop. It is what it is when it came off the, the field or out of the orchard. And yeah, what you see, what you taste is what you get, definitely. Mm, I see. So for at least Americans, it seems that the whole idea of organic or non-organic or conventional, it, it's just like it's blown out of the window. And it seems like if you want to really have good food and good health and a better country, et cetera, just go local. Yeah, that's the only way. Yeah, and even if it's a a local farmer who isn't organic or or who's called, they call them organic but not certified, but even Mm, if they're not even that, just just a local farmer and if you trust him, and he might say, yeah, um, by the way, he might say, I sprayed this field with Roundup before I seeded it, see, that's how Roundup used to be used, only before. So there was no possible way the Roundup could get on the food, right? Even before, oh, right. you haven't even seeded the crop yet. For like 30 years, that was the only use of Roundup. And that's why you never heard any problems with Roundup. But now we have GMO crops, they're spraying the crop. And then we have other crops, not GMO, and they're using Roundup to force ripen the crop at the end. So it's as close as possible to, to, to you eating it as you can get. But anyway, so you might find a local farmer and he says, I'm not organic, never was, don't care to be. 
And he says, in fact, I use Roundup, but Alex, I only spray it in the spring before I seed. Because that, that's really smart, actually. That, like I said, that was the only use of Roundup for about three decades, and it was perfectly safe. Um, so he confesses this to you, and then, he, and then you know, you, you trust him. He says, and I don't, I don't use it after that. I don't use anything. This wheat or this barley just grows as nature intends it. And then I harvest it and I put it in a bin without any, uh, you know, without any fumigants or whatever. And there you go. Here's your, here's your product. And, and you should trust that guy more than anyone who's gone through the, the bureaucratic hoops of becoming certified. Yep, that makes sense. Um, so what's the deal with GMOs? I've heard different things. Some people say it's totally not a big deal. Other people say it's the devil. <laughs> what's your word on GMOs? <laughs> Well, they, the, the, the big thing with GMOs is they, they're, they're stealing crops. They're stealing them. So, like, canola is the best example. Uh, canola comes from rapeseed, and it was an industrial oil. Like, during World War II, it was used for certain mechanical parts on, on tanks and airplanes. It was never an edible oil. But the, the, the canola plant or the rapeseed plant, is, is uh, derived from mustard. And you know the story of Jesus and the mustard seed. <clears throat> he says, from this tiny seed grows this big plant, and birds will nest in it. So it's this prolific plant. And so what we did <clears throat> over the centuries was we, we still have mustard, and it is very prolific. You don't even have to uh, <clears throat> spray mustard or anything. But canola that they derived from rapeseed that was derived from mustard seed, um, it, it's a really fragile crop because anything you breed more and more and more, you know, same with animals, then they need total care from whoever, you know, from the farmer. And so, yeah, yeah canola, canola is still a very robust crop. But um, Monsanto came along and said, well, we're going to make it Roundup resistant or Roundup ready so you can spray it and it won't die. So, like I said earlier, instead of just spraying at the beginning of the season, you can spray in the middle of the season and knock out the weeds. Well, yeah, they, they were solving a problem that didn't exist. I mean, sure, there's always weed <laughs> pressure in any crop. But as we heard with Jesus and the mustard seed, th this crop wants to grow. Canola is less robust than its wild uh, you know, uh, ancestor, but still it wants to grow. And and. All this money was spent after World War II, public money, to turn rapeseed into canola oil. Some farmers still call it rapeseed as far as they're concerned. It's just a slightly changed version. And it's now edible. Uh, it's in every deep fat fryer at every restaurant, every fast food restaurant. So it's very important economically to farmers. Well, it was already in every deep fat fryer. Farmers were already growing it. And what Monsanto did is they came along after we we developed it from an inedible crop to an edible crop and they just took it and 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 their response will be what do you, we didn't take it you can if you're a farmer you can still grow non-gmo well yeah you'll be lucky to get 30 or 40 bushels an acre and if you're growing gmo you're going to get 70 or 80 so who in his right mind well the only people still growing non-gmo besides a few organic farmers very, very few. Most organic people don't just don't like canola because they think, like you said, it's they think it's the devil, even even if it's not genetically modified. But um, yeah, there's a handful of farmers still growing non-GMO, and it's for a niche market on contract. Maybe a health food restaurant. <laughs> It'll be rare, but some health food restaurants have a fryer. 
They have a deep fryer. And so they're, they're going to be committed to buying non-GMO, and, and good for them. But you see what I mean? Um, no, really, there is no choice. There, there's no choice for farmers. Unless you're one of these very, very few farmers and you, and you, and you want to grow canola, you're going to grow GMO canola just like you're going to grow GMO corn, GMO soy. There, there's no, they stole those crops. So where the average farmer, and by average I mean 99% of farmers, that is all they can do or they're going to go broke. No one, in other words, is going to grow non-GMO canola for the, you know, out of the goodness of their heart or for moral ethical reasons. So I, I say Monsanto stole that crop. They stole all of that development after World War II at public expense, and they added one feature. Now, they'll say it's an important feature because the yields have gone up so much, right? But, yeah, I, I would argue, well, yeah, if the yields didn't go up, you, you wouldn't have had a successful crop that forced 99% of farmers to, to switch to it. Um, and uh, so that to me, people argue about the health effects, Alex. I, I couldn't say I, I've, I've heard uh, rumors at best that, that GMOs aren't healthy. For me, it's an uh, ethical issue. It would be like you, you might have heard um, around um, after Henry Ford came up with the assembly line. Uh, I think it was... Chevrolet tried to sue him because Chevrolet, which ended up getting bought out by General Motors, claimed that uh, he patented the car. <laughs> and Henry Ford said, you can't patent the car. You know, it's a, it's a whole thing. It's not a piece of one piece of technology. It'd be like patenting <laughs> the computer, right? Like you can pack, patent an operating system or a, a program on a computer. You can't patent the whole computer. Well, that's essentially what Monsanto did. They patented uh, Roundup Ready canola, and they stole it. Um, before that, all developments in crops were done uh, at public expense for the public good. Like, like if there was a disease uh, hitting a crop, then universities would work on it and come up with a disease-resistant variety of that crop. And they didn't, farmers weren't charged a penny for it. They just paid the normal price they always did. So yeah, for me, it's a, a moral ethical issue. You can't own a life form. And yeah, Monsanto, that now got purchased by Bayer. Sorry to run on, but uh, yeah, they now own like most of our food. They effectively own it. Yeah, that's a... Uh... The ethical issue, I mean, oh man. So, like, in the, in the first part of our talk, you know, we were we were talking about, you know, buying local and, you know, taking, kind of like taking our power back that way, right? But this, like, if they already have patents, like, what, what can we do? How do we... I guess, first of all, like, I guess we should, like, with all things, educate people on how it's unethical. But even so, I mean, what's the action plan against this? Well, I, I do have some bad news. Um, in When they increased the productivity of corn land, canola land, and soy, those are the three major GMO crops, they also drove up the price of the land. Um, so down here in Texas, you can get, um, uh, you, you can buy farmland. It's not very good farmland here. That's why we're, we're mainly ranch country. Ranching takes, the, the land doesn't have to be as good. It's, it's pasture land. Uh, but yeah, it's about 5,000 an acre. Well, up in uh, Idaho and Oregon, where I, I did a lot of work, 
uh, the land is 20,000 an acre. And that's directly because they grow GMO crops. We don't grow GMO crops here. Like I say, we just have cattle. And there's a few, few crops grown, but it's, it's, uh, it's rare. But up in Oregon, Idaho, Washington State, yeah, they're, they're all growing GMO crops. And it drove up the land price. And that's because of an old economic imperative. And it, it's this, any benefit accrues to the landlord. So even if we look at a government subsidy, you know, like, like um, there's a trade, trade negotiation going on with China. And so the USDA, Trump feels bad. He gets the USDA to, to bail out the pork producers because they're not selling their pork to, to China, right? And they're, they're slaughtering pigs and throwing them in a landfill. Well, <clears throat> that subsidy, <clears throat> if, if, if you own your own land, great, you're going to be fine. The, the subsidy will go where it's intended. But if you're a pig farmer and you're renting land off of me, I'm going to raise the rent, Alex, because Trump just gave you a big fat check. Your rent's going up next year. Sorry. <laughs> and, if, and if you don't like it, I'll find another renter. And that goes for oh. renting land or leasing the land. Now, now, let's say you are the owner, um, so you don't have to raise your own rent because you're the owner. Well, it's still driving up the market. So when you come time to sell, well, you're not stupid. You're not going to sell your land for 10000 an acre. You're going to sell it for 20000 an acre, just like everyone else around you is. So, so anyway, sorry to get off on that, but there's no room left for the local heirloom, organic, natural farmer anymore. There, there are still places in America where you can find good land that's less expensive, but it's all gone up in price. And that's, again, why so much organic food is being imported. Because like, look at land in Mexico and China. It's basically free because no one owns it, right? So <laughs> who cares? And if they can double the price by getting it USDA certified, well, they're, they're just making more money than they, than they were making in the first place. So I, I hate to bring bad news, but it, you have to realize that's the real downward pressure here is the whole – it basically boils down to real estate. It's just being driven through the roof for, for no good reason. Mm. So I, I agree that, you know, uh, owning or patenting a life form is unethical. Now, I just thought of a corollary in my head, which is cannabis. So this plant has been wholly illegal for decades, and then all of a sudden it's starting to get legalized. Now, why is it getting legalized? As far, as far as I can tell, it has nothing to do with the ethics. There's not a bunch of people who decided, oh, this is bad, we've got to change. It's money or something else. So, uh, well, on the one hand, I guess I'm thinking, like, what's, what's the power play for GMOs? But, but, but I'm, I'm an ethical person. I'm a, that's, like, how I think about things. So... But besides um, taking ownership of a plant life form like that, what are, what are the other ethical components to GMOs? There must be more to it than that, I think. Well, yeah, the, the health component is still being argued. And, and I, I couldn't say either way that in defense of GMOs, you know, they've been around, even though they were sort of, brought in unethically uh, through, through the patenting office instead of through the front door of, of the USDA. Um, they, they've been around for like 20 years now. So, I mean, where's, where's the body count? 
But um, to patent a life form, see, you know what they did? Um, the first life form they patented, Alex, was a mouse. I don't know if you remember that, but it was back in the 90s. They, they patented a mouse. And, and everyone thought, well, why'd they patent a mouse? Well, because no one cared. So they could set precedent because the very yeah. idea of patenting a life form had never existed before. So our law is based on precedent. So they did the mouse first because there's no, there's no mouse growers association, right? If they had done lambs first, well, the lamb growers might have said, hey, you're going you're gonna to blow up our market. We won't be able to sell lambs to Europe. And, and the, by the way, the canola growers did say that when they brought out canola, but they were, there was enough momentum that they crushed them. But they first brought out the mouse. So really, I, yeah, there, there are other arguments against GMOs. But for me, it's, I, I think that's just the beginning and the end of it, right? Like, it's, it's unethical. And that's not just like, um, you know, kind of like some college-level question. Like, like, Alex, if you loan me your pencil and I forget to give it to you and then I, you know, I don't bring it the next day, can I just keep the pencil? You know, it's not like something academic. We're talking about life. Like, they, I don't, they don't even understand how life works. And when they, when they mess with the, ge the genome, they think they know what they're getting. And I don't know. No one knows for sure what, the, what they're getting. Uh, so, so to me, I think the ethical argument, like I say, it's not just academic. I think that just blows it out of the water. So... If they want to keep GMOs, well, at least they should be, uh, they, they should be, get rid of the licensing. That, yeah, maybe you yeah. still have to, you know, if you go buy any kind of seed, you're going to pay more for the seed than you would pay for just raw grain. So that's, that's normal. You pay seed growers. There's pedigree and foundation seed growers. They know what they're doing. They guarantee the purity of the seed. Okay, let's, let's do that with GMOs. That, yeah, they, they will be more expensive but not licensed, not patented. So the way it works, Alex, is the farmer buys the seed, pays a lot for it, way more, even more than you'd pay just for seed from a foundation seed grower. Monsanto charges a lot. Then you, buy, you have to buy the Roundup, if it's a Roundup ready crop, and you're probably going to buy the name brand Roundup. Then, Alex, you pay a licensing fee of, I think it's about $20 an acre. And you know, that, that number doesn't mean anything to you because you're not a farmer. But, but believe me, you might be spending um, $5 an acre on diesel fuel. That would be your total expense. Your, your, um, your land cost for renting or owning the land might be 40 or $50 an acre if you amortize it, you know. And so $20 an acre, after you bought the seed from Monsanto, that's, that's their cream. That's, their, that's where you see the patent law coming into effect and dipping into the pocketbook of the farmer. Now, if it dips into the pocketbook of the farmer, it dips into the market as a whole and, and affects all of us. So anyway, back to, to me, it comes back to the, the patent. If they got rid of patents um, on life forms, then I think a lot of the uh, objections to GMOs would, would go away. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds good to me. Um, a licensing fee, that's like... Yeah. That's absurd. Like, oh my God. And for seeds, like, I'm, it's, it's kind of like a, like a, like a yearly subscription to Microsoft office or something. Yeah. Which, it it, is, you know, it, yeah, it's, it's like, a, it makes, you know, for something like Microsoft office, that's fine. But if you're like, if you're a farmer and you're buying seeds and there's a, a license fee for this, for the, Oh my God! <laughs> yeah. 
But you, you are absolutely right to compare it to the Microsoft Office license. You buy the product first, load it on your computer, and then you pay per year to keep it updated. And yeah, you're right. You don't have to buy that. You, you could use, you know, you, you could use, uh, uh, um, what do they call that? Open source alternatives to Microsoft. So you're not forced to do that. And if you like it, you'll pay. But yeah, the farmers are really forced into this. And it's, and it's, they, they, they still buy the seed every year. <laughs> They're not allowed to keep any seed. So they, they can't roll it over to the next year. So it's, yeah, it's literally money on top of money. And, and the gov- it wouldn't happen without the government's um, sanctioning it. So, and it was during the Clinton administration, no less. You know, people think, oh, those mean old Republicans. No, no, the, the Democrats are right in there with the, um, with the, the whole agribusiness um, lobby in Washington. So the next uh, big part about food, this huge topic, I think, is animals. So uh, going back a few thousand years uh, or even just a few hundred years, animals, I think, were in a really essential part to any farm and even to just people in general, you know, livestock animals. Now we have all these machines, all these nutritional information, you know, there's there's like world star athletes who are totally vegan. So I don't know. What's what's your thoughts on animals today in well, food? Yeah, the the first animal is the human, the farmer. Of course, we're not animals. We're we're made in God's image. But yeah, the what you're seeing, you mentioned like it used to be integral to the farm to have animals, even a grain farm you know, that made its really a cash off of grain. It had animals, it had livestock, and that was called a mixed farm. And there was varying degrees of mixed farms. They, they could be more into livestock, but they still had crops. And they could be more into crops, but they always had, it was just standard, right? You'd go to a farm and uh, there was goats and sheep and chickens and dairy cows. Um, so in getting rid of farmers, they've, they've, they've centralized not only agriculture as a whole, but they've centralized livestock. So now you'll see um, pig, pig and chicken barns. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll have 20,000 chickens in a barn and the farm will have 10 barns that they rotate. And so these chickens are maturing in May, these ones are maturing in June and they all, they all go to market. And, and that's all that farmer does. He doesn't even grow his own grain, he just buys it from other grain uh, uh, growers. And so everything's hyper-specialized and mm. centralized. And people think, well, that's good because you get chicken for a buck ninety-eight a pound at Walmart, and pork <laughs> is cheap too. Um, but but no, the, a, a few things happen. First of all, it's horrible conditions for the animals. But we have back to the first animal. Remember the farmer again, not a, not a real animal made in God's image, but just go with me on it. You 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 want more farmers. The the more centralized it becomes. Um, the more subject they are to political control. So Stalin did that. He did that at the barrel of a gun. He just went out and shot farmers, right? Well, we're doing it economically. So yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the average farm has just ballooned in size. And I, I, there's been about a 90% reduction in the headcount of farmers uh, since the 1960s. See, even after World War II, all the all the boys came back from war and they went back to the farm and the farm lasted through the fifties and sixties. It was still 
um, a part of American life. It's not anymore. The farm is now the exception. It's less than one, way less than 1% of Americans are farmers. And that's bad for all of us. Um, but yeah, back to animals. Uh, the, the food isn't as healthy. The animals are stressed. And, uh, and, and, and the, worst, the, the worst thing is cheap food. Everyone just assumes, oh, it's cheap. That's good. No, it's, it's not good because it, everything's relative. You know, I, I like anything in my life. I like it if it's cheaper, but, you know, it doesn't take much to, to, to go back and look at the big picture. I wouldn't mind paying twice as much for my food. America has the lowest uh, cost of food in the world and probably the, wow. the, least, the least nutritional food, really. Like the French say, there's only so much flavor per acre. <laughs> It's yeah. a very French saying. Yeah, yeah they're right. Yeah. So, of course, there's a correlation there too, right? When you increase all this GMO, centralization, all this stuff, you're going to have less nutrients, lower price. It's all correlated, right? Yeah, and it's, it's not sustainable in the long run. I mean, um, so, so now instead of having 100 farms with mixed livestock grain operations, and then each individual farm, they take the manure from the farmyard and spread it out. And obviously, they're going to put it on their cash crop where they're going to make the most money. So they, they make all these decisions that, you know, you don't want to centralize this because you'll mess it up, just like the Soviets did after they, they shot all the farmers. They're like, whoa, we're starving now. So you want to leave this in the hands of as many able-bodied, uh, smart individuals as you can. Well, instead now it's all centralized. So they have, they have manure problems. Well, what do you do when you have like 50,000 pigs on a couple of acres of land? Well, they have all these waste. Uh, they're like industrial scale. They make our municipal sewage systems look like kindergarten. They have these complex, you know, stainless steel systems to handle liquid pig manure. Now, Chicken manure is a little easier. They go in with a, a, a front-end loader after the chickens are all sold out, and they just clear out the barn. Then they open the doors so it airs out. But, but pig manure is just a disgusting mess, and um, they don't know what to do with it all. They, they can't get it to, like if the guy bought his feed from someone more than 10 miles away, it doesn't pay to haul the manure. Manure doesn't have, uh, there, there's no value to it. It's it's worth zero in the market. So, but a farmer will justify within his own operation. He'll say, well, I've, I've got a cash crop three miles away. Yes, that's less convenient than just dumping it right next to the yard where I have maybe some hay growing and I don't care about the hay as much. I want it on that cash crop three miles away. He can make that decision. But you start hauling manure anymore, you know, 10, 11 miles and whatever economics there were, remember, it's literally worth zero, but whatever economics there are in manure, they forget it. They go out the window. So, and if you look at beef, so they're all, beef is still raised on pasture. So that's good. The manure just goes there on the pasture where, where, it, where it originated, really. But then you go to a feedlot. The animals are spending the last weeks of their life in a feedlot. And same thing, Alex. They have these massive manure problems. And it's even worse then because... Uh, the, the manure is less dense in terms of fertility. So now you're hauling cow manure 10 miles. Well, it doesn't have the same bang for your buck once you get it to the field. So again, all this fertility is being wasted. 
Uh, and then it causes the opposite problem. If you have too much nitrogen and phosphorus in one area, it just becomes too densified and it just starts contaminating the surrounding area through the groundwater. Um, so it's all going to flow through the groundwater. And if the only thing worse than not enough nitrogen and phosphorus is too much. It'll just kill, it'll just kill uh, right, crops. Right. Yeah. And, and then it goes into the Mississippi and goes out into the mouth of the, the Delta into the Gulf of Mexico. Well, yeah, it's, it's nothing can grow there. There's a, a hypoxic zone where there's no fish or, or anything living. It's a, it's called a dead zone. And yeah, that's from, that's, that's from the same nitrogen and phosphorus that makes our crops grow. Well, it's now having the opposite effect throughout the Mississippi Valley and down into the Gulf of Mexico. So that's all the result of, of concentration and centralization in farming. Let me tell you a little bit about myself, my diet. So um, I'm not really super strict about most things in my life, but I am mostly vegetarian. My, my basic rule is if it's bigger than me, I definitely don't eat it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but mammals, I like pretty much all mammals. I don't, I, I really can't justify eating because they're, they have enough sentience mm -hmm. where like, like it's one thing if you're on a very rural farm, you know, you know, the farmer, everything is done super humanely, organically, et cetera. But, and even, even still, I think there's bad karma, but it's like, it's manageable. And I think yeah. that's why, that's how we've, we've come. That's how we're all alive today. Our ancestors were, you know, handling this as best they could, I think. But now with uh, this modern world, the modern system, whatever this is, don't you think it'd be better if we just eliminated animals from the whole farming game altogether? Like, well, you, you can't. You literally cannot. Unless you go to a totally uh, industrialized chemical scientific version of farming. So, so you see that happening now. Like I mentioned, all farms used to have livestock because they needed the manure to fertilize the fields. And they, they wanted dairy. I'm sure you still, you still eat dairy a little yeah, yeah, a little bit yeah. here and there. Okay. I mean, the, the dairy in China is terrible. Oh, <laughs> but, uh, that's right. Yeah, you're in Asia, right? Yes, yeah, so be careful not, not there. Not good dairy here. Yeah, but um, that was the model. You need, it was called a mixed farming model, and you needed the, the manure from the animals, and then the animals ate the parts of the crop that we didn't want, right? They, they, they could, if, if you had a piece of bad land, they, they, we call that scrub land, also called pasture. Any kind, of, any kind of land can be pasture. It's the lowest form, it's the lowest quality, least value land. So that's where you put your, your animals to, to graze. And so they're taking something out of that land that you would never see in the, in the dirty 30s. They, the, the price of uh, commodity crops, because the, the, remember the Russians, well, the, not the Russians, the Soviets were killing all their farmers. So they, they, were, they had to buy our grain. So we started plowing up marginal land in the Midwest while well, it created the Dust Bowl. And we've learned our lesson. You leave that land untouched. Pasture land should never be broken. And what a cow does, or a sheep or a goat, but the, the cow is the best, Alex. The cow, like, how much, when you look out at a piece of land, 
scrub land, just, you know, grass growing on it, how much protein and fat is in that grass? Zero. Literally zero. Now, when they, by the way, when they feed an animal at a feedlot, they give it grain. There's protein in the grain, and that becomes the protein in the meat. And that, that's another story, but I just want to contrast the healthy raising of a ruminant. It's, it's performing a miracle for humankind. It's eating something and converting it into uh, muscle, protein, and, and fat. And so that's the four stomach digestive system of, of your ruminants. Um, and yeah, we can't live without that unless we move, as we're seeing, to a totally centralized industrial model where they, you know, now, now they're claiming they're going to make synthetic meat, like on top of, you know, patenting all of our staple crops and basically owning them. They're, they're gonna, they, their plan is to take over the meat market. And, and then they, they'll say to someone like you, they'll say, well, what's the problem? We didn't have to kill an animal. We made it in the lab. But yeah, don't, don't touch that garbage. Trust me. But back to the, the, the model of farming, even when farming was modernizing after World War II and even into the 70s where we started getting the first pesticides and herbicides, um, the, the model was always mixed to some degree or another, some degree of livestock. Because again, the livestock... It, put it this way, if we didn't have uh, cows especially grazing farmland, probably about a third of America, of, of the land base, wouldn't produce any food. Like I said, they, they tried mm, right, plowing right. up that land in the 30s and they, they paid a dear price for it. So, so yeah, the cow is performing this. this it's, it's nothing short of a miracle, really, to convert garbage land into high it's the best you know in terms of dollars the the steak is the it's the cadillac of food if you will so so yeah if, if you're going to be vegetarian i'm sure you're very careful a lot of people think well i'll just eliminate meat um, i like quoting the bible from genesis where it says these trees are for your meat it, it you know it's very clear that there's they must be like a nut tree or something these, these are for your meat um, and we don't know what those trees are, but we can assume, you know, um, uh, my grandma was a vegetarian too. And, and she had a, a diet of a certain like almonds and walnuts and cashews. I forget what it was cause I'm, I'm not vegetarian or vegan, but yeah, she was very strict on that to make sure to get, you know, like she'd eat three almonds a day or something. And it was because you need, you need to replace the meat with these, these, tree growing meats that are mentioned in the Bible. Um, so you have to be careful is all I'm saying. And, um, but with, there, there's nothing wrong. I think with, with, uh, meat, although you're right, it, it's, there's no doubt slaughtering an animal is cruel. And the, so the last thing I would say on that, you're better off having a hundred farms uh, with a hundred farmers and they're each slaughtering one animal, you know, every month, let's say, rather than going to a slaughterhouse. I inspected slaughterhouses, Alex, and it's, it's a holocaust. You stand there and watch this, uh, chickens, cows, just going through this assembly line of slaughter. And yeah, they, they sort of, they clue on. They clue on right at the end, and uh, it's, it's not pretty. But um, I, I've seen on-farm slaughter, and the cow has no idea. Uh, I saw it where they, they, I'll be a bit graphic, but they, they put a, a, a halter around the steer, and they, they wrap the rope around a fence post, and the steer is just standing there about five feet away from the fence post. Well, the other guy gets ready with a sledgehammer or an axe. He's going to use the back, 
And when he's ready, they pull the rope so that Steer's head is right against the fence post, and then wham, they hit him, hit him right in the center of the head, and he has no idea what what hit him. He's, as they say, he he hits the ground. He's he's dead already, and um, still, it's it's cruel. It is cruel. I I don't like it when people try to argue that uh, the meat industry isn't cruel. It's like hunting. Yeah, it, it's cruel. It, it's blood. It, it has to be. You're killing something. Um, so I, I think there's just no denying that. But yeah, the, the way they're doing it now, it's, it's an industrial process. The people, all those people working in there, Alex, they hate their jobs and they hate their lives. There's nothing redeeming about that, that work. Yeah. Um, so the, the main magic I, that, I, that I'm getting... What, from what you're saying about animals, is the fertilizer, right? That's the main thing that they're well, giving us? Or? Well, also c- giving us food out of land that we would never get food out of if we didn't have livestock. We have no way of getting food out of pasture. But yeah, yeah, then, then you get into the fertility. Yeah, the, the fertility is, I'd say they're equal, Alex, 50-50, 50-50. So you mean 50, 150, 50% is uh, fertilizer, the other 50% is their meat? Well, the other 50% is the meat we get from otherwise unusable land. Now, though, in the modern age, when they centralize, um, instead of having animals living off of pasture land that, that, we, that we could not get crops out of, um, now they're, they're just putting them all in barns and bringing the food in. And they're bringing them grain, which is insane. I mean, um, these animals aren't supposed to eat grain, really. Uh, so we're, we're stuffing them with grain, and then they're, 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 um, they're, their days are numbered, Alex. They, we're going to slaughter them anyway, but if, if you let them live, they'd probably die of liver failure or something. Uh, the, all these animals, chickens, pigs, and, and cows, and sheep, they're not supposed to have a high-protein diet of grain, uh, at least not very much of it. So we're sort of forcing them to force-feed them to get the most, uh, most market growth out of them as we can in a short period of time. Hmm. I uh, heard recently it said processed meat is uh, classified as a group one carcinogen by the World Health Order Organization. Now, first of all, processed meat, does this mean like sausages, stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, that'll be. So if you, if you cut up a cow into steaks, that is called processing but I'm pretty sure what they're referring to is like bologna and, and pepperoni and luncheon meats and such. And, and the, yeah, the way they do that, they, they, they use a lot of acids. Like when you grind up meat, that's, that's how you can make sausage. But when they make certain luncheon meats, um, they, they, they put the meat, slabs of meat in a big tub, and then they just pour acid in and it all melts into like pudding. And then it solidifies. And they say the acid all evaporates, Maybe it all does. I don't know. And then, yeah, then you slice that up. That's why you have all these loafs of, of processed meats. You wonder, well, how'd they, get, how'd they get the meat into that square or, or tubular shape? Well, it's acids. And again, they, they say, well, all the acid's gone. Don't, don't worry. But yeah, we, we don't eat much of that around here. Uh, we, we just like the whole chunk of meat when we eat meat. Hmm. And, oh, and by yeah. the way, we, we, we're off pork and poultry totally because those – like I mentioned, they're totally unnatural now. They're, they're, they're living in a barn. The food's brought in. It's not the right food. It's all grain. And, yeah, we, we just eat beef here. 
what about uh, fish and seafood in general? Yeah, yeah, we, we like fish. Um, that seems okay. Um, I'm a little worried about salmon. They're, they're farming it. But then, you know, the, the, the counter argument is, well, if you don't farm it, then, then you're, you're it's, salmon is the last wild stock that we still rely upon, salmon and tuna. And so the argument is, well, if we start farming it, it'll be less pressure on the wild stock. But I don't know, the, the farming, again, it's unnatural, right? Uh, they're not letting them forage. They're in a pen and they have to bring the food in and they bring in this high protein like corn or something. And when's the last time salmon in the ocean ever <laughs> ate a piece of corn? <laughs> so it can't, it just can't be the same. So we, we do eat fish. But uh, I'm very troubled. I can't give you a clear answer on the whole farmed fish versus wild caught. I, I don't know which one's better or which one's worse. Well, um, yeah, as like for me as an individual, it's not it's not an issue. Like I've I've just been vegetarian long enough where it's just habit. It's it's like I literally don't think about it anymore. And, uh, yeah, it's not a, it's not a big deal, but, um, uh, cows are like, well, first of all, cows are huge. So yeah. they, they, they require like so much resources. Well, that's right. That's tricky. Yeah. So, so one of the things they'll, well, here's two things. The anti cow people will say is how much feed it takes to get a pound of meat. And I think it's like 10 to one. Okay. 10 to one. Well, nine of those pounds of feed came off that pasture land that was wasted. Now here, and here's a huge point. Um, pasture land is supposed to be grazed. Like forget farmers, forget when we settled this continent, there were buffalo and antelope and they grazed the, the, the land. Now, what happens when you don't graze a piece of land, same as a forest, it becomes susceptible to fire. And ironically, the buffalo were the only animals that could outrun a forest fire. <laughs> and when the settlers came here, they'd find oh. like a whole herd of antelope or deer that, that got the, like it, it goes as fast as the wind, basically. If you have a 40 mile an hour wind, well, a deer can go 40 miles an hour for about two minutes and then it starts to get winded. And yeah, and they, and they would find entire herds of these smaller animals. But yeah, the buffalo could always outrun uh, the fire or even, they say, put it out. Um, but in any case, yeah, it, it, has, wow. it was always intended to be grazed. Always. That's what God intended. So if you don't, so if you leave pasture, you're not saving anything. It's not like preserving an old growth forest. Um, it's just going to burn someday. Sooner or later, a uh, lightning strike, something will ignite it. And, um, and the taller the grass is, because it wasn't grazed, the more it'll just burn up. So the animals graze it. The only animal you have to be careful of is horses, because they have front teeth like us. They have chompers, and they'll chomp the grass right down. And it's, it's the same as a grasshopper. Grasshoppers will eat right down to the, to the stem, and then there's no photosynthesis anymore. But if you have a, a piece of grass, and the roots could be like 20 feet deep, Alex. But as long as you have, as long as the cow or the goat left a little tuft of grass on top, you know, it could look like a little tiny tuft. And you'd think, well, how is that going to sustain 20 feet of roots? <laughs> That's all it takes. And then it'll spring back. 
So, so the most important thing with pasture is pasture management. You got to rotate. You can't, you can't overgraze because then you will, you will wipe out the pasture and, and it'll turn to dust. Um, but, but yeah, so uh, as long as it's a, the, the argument about the resources, um, it, it sort of falls flat if you understand that they only fed that, they only had to use a truck, in other words, to bring food to that, that animal, that cow, for probably the last few weeks of its life. Now, um, that can be bad. That can be, they're, they're, they're shocking the cow's system. The meat can be, as you mentioned earlier, the meat can become toxic even before you process it because the animal isn't meant to eat a high protein grain diet. But with that said, you should finish an animal. It's really hard to grass finish, to take, take an animal off pasture. It ate nine pounds of pasture for its life. And then now you're going to finish it in the barnyard with lush, green grass, it can have a really gamey taste and the fat won't, won't be good. So all farmers have always finished animals on grain, but not as much grain as they're using. In a feedlot, it's just all grain. They suddenly switch in one day, they go from an all grass diet, which is like eating a salad, to a high protein, dense, and their liver and kidneys start to fail. Like I said, if they don't slaughter them, they're going to they're gonna die anyway. So so that's bad. But But, but back to the the resource argument, yeah, people don't realize that 90% of the resource came from, it was for free, basically. The other one, Alex, is water. They say it takes, I think it's 40 gallons of water to make one pound of meat or something. Well, if again, if you're out on the pasture, it's, it's uh, rainwater, it's well water, it, it, it doesn't take a lot of energy to get that. In other words, um, if a farmer has a pasture, and there is no surface water, there's no dugout, no stream, and he has to dig a well. If the well is more than 50 feet deep, forget it. It's not a, it's not a viable pasture. He's going to lose money because he's going to have to use more electricity to pump the water up from like 200 feet. They, they, they'll dig wells like 200 feet and deeper for um, irrigated crops, you know, like, like broccoli we, you know, or lettuce, they'll, they'll, the, the money is there. They can go 300 feet. But, you know, your average well for just a, a, you know, a mixed farm. It, they were like uh, 50 feet would be a deep well. A lot of wells were 20 or 30 feet deep. So yeah, the reason, and then they had a windmill too to pump the water, Alex. That was the old days. That was the way they did it. And so the water was literally free. You didn't have to, you didn't have to dam up a river and put in piping and del- the water was already there or the farmer wouldn't have put his ranch there. Hmm. Sorry to run on about that one there. <laughs> No, no, it's okay. Um, so pasture land, I'm a total newbie here. Yeah. Um, on, so pasture means like there's grass, but we can't grow anything else on it? Is that right. it? Right. Yeah, the grass has been there, Alex, for thousands of years. They don't understand grass. Like you might, you know, as a layman, I, I, and I would, I would include myself in this because I'm not, I'm not a grass scientist, but it would seem like grass is the most boring thing imaginable. You know, they say, hey, it's like watching the grass grow. Grass is the basis <laughs> of the food chain. So not only do ruminants spend the first, you know, 90% of their life on grass, God-given grass, you might, some farmers go out and seed it. They might put a bit of fertilizer on it, but it's basically God-given. It was there already. Um, not only that, but all of our cereal crops and rice too, so barley, oats, wheat, 
uh, and, and rice, those are all grasses. So we don't understand grasses. We know grass is classified as an annual. If you, if you planted a seed, one seed of grass and grew it in a little cup, it would grow up, produce seed at the top, whatever kind it is, and then the, it would die, and that's the end of it. But in a pasture, if it's being grazed, or if a forest fire comes through and burns it off, the roots are still there and it springs back. So even though it's an annual mm. crop, See, like you see people, they buy bedding plants every year, right? And I don't know why they do it, but they, they want their yard to look pretty. Well, they got to put those plants in every year because it's an annual. It's not a biannual or a perennial. A tree is a perennial. It lasts 50 or 100 years. But yeah, grasses are an annual. And yet, if they're like, look, when's the last time you see? Well, maybe you don't have a lawn over there in China, but we have a lawn here. <laughs> We've never seeded it. As long as we mow it. It'll, it'll keep growing back up from the roots. So even though it's an annual crop, it acts like a perennial. So when you have a pasture, you have to manage it like uh, to, to, to keep it permanent, in other words. Never overgraze it. Never undergraze it. That's just as bad. And it'll just keep growing. And yeah, it, it's literally the basis of our modern food system, even if you're a vegetarian. It's uh, without grasses... We, there, there'd be a, a tenth as many people eating food and living on this planet, quite, quite literally. Mm. So uh, if we just let the animals just graze as they, as they will, and um, we kinda, if we are there to collect their manure and then bring it to some other uh, growable land, is that a feasible alternative? I'm just trying to save some animals here. <laughs> that's, that's where I'm coming from. <laughs> well, the, the best example is a dairy farm. Um, so those animals live a good life. Uh, they're well taken care of. You know, you hear about animal abuse, right? It's true. There is animal abuse. Hopefully it's rare. Um, but no one abuses a dairy cow. A dairy cow is worth, you know, it, it, like, like, I don't know, $100,000. That's how much milk you're going to get out of her in her 14 or 15 years plus she's giving you calves that you'll either sell off for meat if it's a bull or you'll keep as a replacement heifer to to eventually replace your older cows so yeah yeah no one is abusing so the dairy cow is the best example um, and then all of your manure most the, the, the cows go out to the pasture after they're milked um, so their manure is spread out on its own, but you're going to, as you can imagine, you're going to have more concentration the closer you get to the barn. And yeah, once a year or twice a year, you've got to clear that out. And again, the economics are, you, you can't haul that, you know, a mile, two miles. It doesn't make any sense to go any further. And um, now that we see, ironically, it's in the organic dairy industry, Alex, you're seeing the, the 10,000 head dairy farm. So when I was growing up, I worked on a 60-head dairy farm, and the big ones were 100, 120. And then when I became an inspector in the early thousands, uh, there were some farms that were dairy farms that were going to a few hundred, and they would have many hired hands and a lot of automation to handle two or three hundred cows. Well, yeah, like I say, now you see Horizon Dairy, they, they'll have thousands of cows, and they're just constantly milking. Because it never ends. The cows, are, cows line up on their own to be milked. They want to be milked because uh, their udder starts to hurt. So they're just constantly lining up to be milked. And they have this big uh, production line, industrial 
milking operation going with all these hired hands. There, there's no farmer left anymore. It's all staff, right? It's all employees. But here's the problem, the manure. The, it doesn't pay to haul that manure. Now, now remember, when the cow's done milking, she's supposed to walk a certain distance away from the black manure-filled farmyard and go to some nice green pasture, right? And there's none left. <laughs> there's so many cows around these allegedly organic dairy operations. If, if, if you fly over them, they're just black for like hundreds of yards, like, like even a half mile. So now, so now you, you, you know, wherever it is, however far the cow has to go to get to the green pasture, well, where are you going to haul the manure? Because you can't haul it just out half mile to the green pasture. That's going to defeat the purpose. You have to go even further to where, where the crop is growing, where you're growing something that the cows eat. Um, and yeah, the economics fall out. And so a lot of these places, that's an afterthought to them. They're, they're not managing their manure. And, it, and, and frankly, it's sort of impossible not to give them a break on that. But they've done it to themselves, right? They've destroyed the the they've destroyed thousands of years of mixed farming model by being too big, and they don't care because they're, they're making money. Yeah, which uh, kind of goes back to ethics again. If you if you have like the Bible or something where you don't need to care so much about money and you can focus more on doing the right thing, a lot of these problems will go away, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, why don't we, if we want to produce something off our land, why, why isn't at least one of the things we produce, Alex, people? I, I, I always like, um, I think his name is Etiore. He was a Vatican economist under Pope John Paul II. So, you know, back in the Reagan-Thatcher era when, when the Catholics were helping us fight communism. But th I think his name is Etiore, and he said, man is man's greatest resource. And, oh, it's true. Yeah, so, so what I'm saying is, we're, we're at a point now, I'm, all, all I'm saying is, can't man be at least one of our resources? Like he said, it's, it is our greatest. I'm saying, can it even be one? And it's not. It's not. No one cares if a town gets shut down in the Midwest. No one cares if there's, you know, 25 kids left in a high school somewhere, and they're just going to graduate them out and then shut the school down. No one cares. We're, we're not um, even animals anymore, Alex. Well, one, one reason that could be is, you know, slavery was, recent, was a big thing forever, and, and then all of a sudden it just stopped. So maybe in our collective unconscious, we're kind of afraid to go back to that kind of, to, you know, treating a human as a means to an end as opposed to just an end. But as you said, the, the, the Vatican guy, sorry, I already forget his it, name. Yeah, it's your but, it's uh, your we we are a huge resource. I know this personally. Like, if you give me a million dollars or a hundred men, I can count on. I'll go with a hundred men. No, yeah. no problem. Yeah. No hesitation there. Yeah, definitely. And and no one, no corporation, no government looks at that formula. Doesn't exist for them, Alex. It does. It's not on the. It's not in their. It's, it's not in the, it, it, even, even up for consideration. They're, they're looking at, you know, tons of iron ore and uh, bushels of corn. Yeah, and, and if one guy can produce the corn that 20 guys used to, well, that's even better. And, and that's why you have, what's his name? Sherry, what's the name of that? There's that guy running for the Democrats right now. Uh, Yang. 
Yang. Oh, yeah. He's the only guy, he's kind of being honest. I'll give him that. He's saying we need universal basic income. Everyone gets a thousand bucks a month. That's insane. But like I said, he's being kind of honest because it's not his fault. But I just told you about the Horizon so-called organic dairy. They, they've replaced a thousand dairy farmers with a hundred hired hands. So what are those 900 guys supposed to do? Well, at least Andrew Yang is thinking of maybe something we could do. Uh, I, I disagree yeah, yeah. with the principle, but he's the only one. He's the only one talking about what we're going to do with all these people. Yeah, that's a great point. And self-driving cars and all the other stuff that'll just destroy jobs by the huh. by the millions. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, Eventually, I'm going to get out of China. <laughs> uh, I have just one more semester, and uh, my plan is to go to Lithuania, where it's very, uh, you know, it's like Europe, America, you know, rural, plenty of uh, farmable land. So if I'm uh, homesteading, and uh, let's say I go, well, I don't, I don't actually care if I go vegan, but I'm, I'm assuming it's just easier to just focus on only vegetables and fruits than uh, having to also deal with an animal. But, um, yeah. Well, yeah, so, so, yeah, I want to let you know that. a statistic. Um, it takes an acre of land per person to feed a person for a year. It's an acre of land per person. And industrial now, isn't, farming, isn't, yeah. Isn't that much less, though, for vegetarians or vegans? No, it'll, it might... It's probably going to stay the same. So if, if you just imagined that this doesn't exist anywhere on the earth, but Alex, let's say you lived alone in the perfect world and you had your acre of land, you'd have all vegetables growing because you're vegetarian. On my acre of land, I'd have half vegetables and half livestock, right? Because I'm going to eat less vegetables, but then I'm going to eat, I'm going to drink the, the dairy and get the eggs and eat the meat from the other half. And it's going to be, it's going to work out to the same either way. Yeah, if now... On the modern system of poultry and pork, remember, they're feeding them grain. They're feeding them people food instead of letting them do what cows yeah. do. Yeah. So that, that model would fall apart because you'd, you'd need the whole acre just to feed enough chickens to keep me alive and I would have no vegetables. But that, that's a broken model of centralization. But yeah, you're looking at about an acre per person. So just be prepared for that. An acre is the size, roughly, of an American football field. It's, um, it's 43,560 square feet. So if you've ever been in a big house, like a 4,000 square foot house, just multiply it by 10. You know, it's, it's, uh, an acre is big. Now with industrial farming, they, they've got that down to half that and they've eliminated all the farmers. But you don't, you don't want to do that, right? You don't want to grow all uh, advanced chemical industrial foods you want to grow natural so yeah you're going to be looking at about an acre per person so you'll have a wife and kids uh just to be sustainable on your own you're going to need five acres and then if you have 10 or 20 acres then that that's your income you'll feed yourself off the four or five acres and and the rest will come now now again it's not going to be a perfect model right you don't literally need if you have five people in your family you don't literally need five acres because you can take the dairy from one of your cows and drink it. And maybe you have, maybe you're a small dairy farm. You have 20 cows you milk and you and your family drink the equivalent of one cow's milk every few days, you know, so you sell. So it, so it isn't going to be perfect, but you just have to be prepared. 
because a lot of people I talk to know it, they're they're prepping for the end times and they're saying, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna grow a garden. And I said, that's great. You should, and you should go to Lithuania, by the way, Alex. Of all places, that's that's a great. I think that would be the great place. They they still they still have farmers there, real farmers, and and you can be yeah, comfortable. Yeah. Uh, but you got to be prepared for the scale. The scale again is about an acre per person per year. So just be ready for that. Well, I I don't I don't know if I can trust that statistic, or at least. I think there must be too much variance here because when I went to Lithuania last summer, uh, my friend, he has like a little garden home. Yes. They have this little garden village there. He's got, it's a small plot of land. If, if one acre is a football field, this is like an end zone. Ah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Okay. Yeah. You know what? I'm sorry. Um, where I, where I grew up, we had six inches of topsoil in the Ukraine. Now you're you're going to Lithuania, but you know same part of the world. It's close, yeah. yeah. Same. The yeah. reason Ukraine was the breadbasket of Europe, and the reason Stalin went in and killed all the Ukrainians because he thought he could grab this resource from them. Remember, we had six inches of topsoil. They have six feet of topsoil, and they still wow. have it. Unlike our topsoil that I mentioned earlier, all going down the Mississippi out into the Gulf of Mexico. That's that's our topsoil out there. It's all it's in the delta. <laughs> well, yeah, Ukraine still has that, and it's it's a, it's a, because they're still farming the way their great great granddaddies did. So yes, maybe you could do it with a half acre or even less. Yeah, it all depends. Look at um, South Vietnam in the fifties when we first went there. We shouldn't have gone there, by the way, but you know the Vietnam War. Forty million people. We're eating rice out of a, only the southern part of Vietnam, not the whole thing. The, the southern rice-growing region, 40 million people were eating out of a, a place the size of, like, uh, uh, Rhode Island. Yeah. It's because it's so fertile there, and it still is. And, yeah, so, so yes, yes, you're absolutely right. You, you've got to find the right place in the world to go, and, and you'll blow my model out of the water, definitely. <laughs> Right, so I think it's just like a, a technical thing here. That that number is is probably yeah based on a certain part of the world with a certain diet and different things. Yes. So like for example, my friend and I, you know, we are we are more or less strict vegetarians. You know, he's got he's got like a dozen, at least a half dozen fruit trees that are, that have given us too much fruit. Oh, yeah. Even for both of us, mm -hmm. zucchinis everywhere, like, you know, this big zucchinis. So it's, for me, it's, it's really a matter of how austere am I willing to be. Like, because I like pasta, you know, and it's a whole, it's, I imagine it's a huge hassle to make your own wheat and then make it into flour, do all that stuff. That's, you know, if I'm willing to just have zucchinis, apples, spinach, you know, just some basic things like that and water, I think even like, I mean, it could be a tiny plot of land that could work. Yeah, yeah. One apple tree would give you, would give one apple tree, a mature apple tree, will, will give too many apples to an entire family. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> that's why all farmers used to trade, you know, so, so you pick your niche, you, so you say, well, that guy's got apple trees, why should I even bother planting one? 
and and you'll you'll grow the zucchini and then and then trade with them. The, but the the most important thing though is canning, because um, you don't want to rely on refrigeration. You, you'll have refrigeration in Lithuania. It's not like it's a medieval country. But but you don't want to <laughs> bank on it. You don't want to bank on. It. You might even have a little deep right. freeze. But canning is the big thing that gets you through the winter because those zucchini they're gonna they're gonna turn to mush by Christmas. You know and uh, so yeah you you just gotta got to get up to speed on preservation and pickling and all that good stuff that people people used to it was just normal to, to do that now it's it's all a lost art mm. um maybe we can uh switch gears here i've got sure. um a question on religion so um this is not controversial though um <laughs> so so <laughs> In in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna says there are only three modes of material nature. This entire material world has only three variants: goodness, passion, and ignorance. Now, these three modes we can apply to food. There are foods in goodness, passion, and ignorance, and there are even ways of cooking. So, when I was in Lithuania, there was only one day in the whole month I was there. He said, "All right, we're going to make a wood fire." and and do everything the all natural way and even though it came out like it didn't look so good and uh, i didn't think the timing was right but for some reason that the purity of it i guess just stuck with me and and in my memory it's like actually the best meal i had there so oh, yeah. my, my question is because well, uh, i'm a newbie to christianity and and you're a christian i take it yes yes yeah so i'm wondering in the the new testament I know the Old Testament has, you know, these kosher laws and all these different things, but it, uh, what, what does the New Testament say on food? Well, the, the big thing is Jesus ate meat, um, but it says nothing about the preparation and all that stuff, except, you know, that it's going to be kosher. Um, kosher laws, uh, it's, it's really not known how... Um, like the, the kosher laws we have today where a rabbi will go to a slaughterhouse or a production facility and bless. Um, it's, it's really become bureaucratic. So the, the, I guess mm. the Bible's, the, the kosher laws probably were pretty bureaucratic back then. But, um, <laughs> you know, besides avoiding shellfish and pork, meat, meat was kosher. It, it was by its very nature kosher. I, I'm not aware of like you, you don't. There's not a lot that you do to an animal except feed it and care for it. And one thing you hear nowadays uh, from the, the the kosher lobby is they they claim to be more humane. I don't know if that's true. The 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 method of slaughter is they they cut the jugular instead of stunning the animal. So I I mm. don't know I, I don't know if I, I I wouldn't say kosher meat is inhumane. But if they want to put their hand up and make claim. That, that they're treating their animals better and therefore the meat is better. I, I say, no, nah, I, I don't think so. Um, but yeah, so, so what you described is um, for me growing up, that, that was hunting. We, we go hunting deer once a year. And here's an interesting statistic for you uh, is in Saskatchewan, where I grew up, there's more deer now than before it was homesteaded. Now you might think, well, who was out counting deer before the homesteading? Well, no one was. It's, it's an estimate but it's based on traffic fatalities. So yeah, there's more cars now, so that's one factor. But um, in Saskatchewan, again, where I'm from, up in Canada, 
uh, most of the accidents are from wildlife collisions and a lot of the fatalities. And that wasn't the case in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Yes, there's more cars now, but not a lot. The, the population of Saskatchewan, it's an interesting province. It, it peaked uh, around a million in the 60s and 70s, and it hasn't, we haven't broken. I remember a few times when I was a kid, the premier would say, hey, you're the one million and first resident, and they'd get a gift basket or something. And then a few weeks later, <laughs> they'd move, you know, and the population has always fluctuated right around a million. So yeah, there, it's a pretty accurate estimate that there's more deer now. And part of the reason there's more deer is, of course, Alex, uh, we, we got rid of the buffalo which was a bad thing to do, but the deer have replaced the buffalo. So we would go out, Alex, I'm, I'm trying to rationalize my, my meat eating here. We would go out hunting deer and the farmers, we were farmers, but we would go to other farms because we're, we're in a populated area. We weren't allowed to shoot rifles where, where we lived. So we'd go to other farms and the farmers loved us. They oh, you're here to shoot the deer. <laughs> and in some areas, <laughs> yeah, in some areas, the, the farmer would go to the wildlife management and get a handful of, of ear tags. And so then we, the hunter, would go, we, we had to have a hunting license, but then we'd go to that farm, you have to have an ear tag for each animal you're going to haul home in your car in case you get stopped. They'll say, hey, is this animal tagged? You know, did you have a tag for it? That's sort of part of the licensing. And the farmers would get a handful of them. If, if, you know, they'd have to fill out some paperwork and they would just hand them out to hunters. Yeah, get rid of these deer because there's too many of them and they're trampling crops. Well, I love deer. I, I don't want to go have a war with the deer, but we always sort of felt um, justified in harvesting a deer. And yeah, uh, the, the meat, um, it, it's, I know you weren't talk, probably not talking about meat with this once a month thing, but that was a once annual thing. And, and uh, the, the meat is just incredible, and it really, I felt, connected us to the, to the environment, to the habitat that we lived in. Ah, wow. Yeah, I know what you mean. That's a, mm, that's a good story. Um, lost my train of thought. Um, hey, can I ask you, how, sure, sure. When's, when's the last time, if ever, that, that you ate meat? Um, to be honest, I had one mouthful of chicken for ah. the new year. Ah. <laughs> okay. Now, so, now if, if yeah, you, yeah. you go to this land in Lithuania, a lot of people, um, cause you're right. It, remember, remember, I don't argue meat is cruel. When we shot those deer, they didn't want to die. And sometimes they didn't die right away and you had to put them out of their misery. It, it wasn't pretty. It's a, it's a necessity, I would say, as, as you mentioned, going back to the Bible with Abraham and everything. Like they, were all, they were all managing animals. So, um, but a lot of people, Alex, they make the mistake of thinking, well, maybe I'll start eating meat, but I'll eat chicken. And it's the worst. If you had a natural chicken, it's fine. But remember, chickens are being fed like pork, like pigs, artificially. And so I guess if you had... If you find someone who has backyard chickens, that's good. They're going to roam around the backyard and eat grass. And the eggs will be have a, a more yellow yolk. But most of those people, they never eat the chicken. They, they, they can't bring themselves to eat. It's like a pet. So the, the, the chicken you get from the store, it's really not the chicken of our ancestors. And, and the last thing left is the cow. It really is sad. But the, the beef is the... 
I know it's the last thing. It's the furthest thing from your mind, right? You're thinking, you're thinking, what? Misha wants me to eat a steak? Yeah. <laughs> it's the most natural. Even the worst steak you get that was as industrialized as it could be, it still spent most of its life on a pasture somewhere. And so at least you're getting those omega fatty acids in the meat and, and all that. But just want to throw that out there. Well, that could explain the health benefits for the Jordan Peterson family. Yeah, yeah, that I, I watched that. I, uh, I I don't trust Jordan Peterson, but that <laughs> I, I I listened to what he was saying about that. I think he's a bit strict. Uh, he claimed he ate nothing but steak with salt and pepper. I, I don't know if that's true, but I'll say this, Alex. You know the food pyramid, the USDA food pyramid. They, they've eliminated it because it used to have grains on the bottom and then vegetables and whatever. And then meat at the very top was the smallest triangle. Well, whether or not you want to eat meat, you shouldn't eat that much grains. It's very bad, just like it's bad for a cow or a pig or a chicken. We're, we're not supposed to eat that much grain. We're, we're overfed on grains. So they, yeah. they got rid of the food pyramid. They now have my plate where it's equal portions of those four major food groups. Mm. Uh, just want to <laughs> put a disclaimer out to my spiritual friends out there. Uh, why did I eat chicken? Well, yeah. what uh, were you thinking? Uh, well, I mean, there's some people that, uh, you know, I just can't talk to cause they're way too like fanatical about this stuff. Yeah. But, um, cause like by my standards, look where I grew up from America, if you get a 95% on a test, that's an A. Mm-hmm. So 95% of the month, no meat. Yeah. So for me, that means I'm vegetarian. Am I super, super duper strict? Okay, I'm not perfect. That's fine. But uh, the Chinese are very generous. A lot of people, I think you may not know this until you really get to know them. And when I say generous, I mean they they are physically aggressive with their generosity. Oh, nice. So it's really cute. It's really funny, you know. So – I my students, they all invited me to uh, this big New Year's party, and it's it's all meat, <laughs> you know. Oh, like e- even even like the, their their pizzas they bought, it's like meat lovers, meat lovers, meat lovers, yeah. meat lovers. There wasn't a single cheese pizza, veggie, nothing. And so you know they were like forcing it in my mouth. So I said, <laughs> oh, you know, I'll I'll take one to be polite. And, and well, Alex, look at <laughs> again, look at the Bible. The feast always involves the slaughter of an animal and meat. It always does. And in fact, if we go to Cain and Abel, that was Cain's downfall. He, he wasn't producing meat. See, it, it's one thing to grow a crop. And yes, we need the crop. You, you don't want the whole crop to go to the animal and then slaughter the animal. But yeah, the, the, the real, uh, if, if there was a, a level, levels of farming, you know, a bachelor's degree would be grain farming. And then a master's degree would be mixed grain and livestock farming and then a phd would be like something like dairy or 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 a greenhouse i don't know right 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 but but yeah that was Cain's downfall that he didn't go to that next level and you don't have to kill the animal i mean look, look at the hindus they 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 eat dairy i mean that's that's where you're getting the fat there's there's really no no except for certain nuts nothing gives you fats and oils like like meat does I mean, sorry, like like dairy does and meat, but yeah, you you can get most everything 
from nuts and, and seeds and dairy, just like the Hindus do. And so I think that, that's what that story is about, really, that Cain, he, he sort of thought, there, I grew a crop, what's wrong? What's wrong with you, God? And, and he hadn't gone to that next level. So, so, you're, so here's your students, God bless them. Um, they don't want to throw a crummy party, you know, so they, they get all this meat because they, they think that's, that's the way, you know, at least once a month, like you said, or once a year, whatever it is, that's how you tie one on in, in China. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> so um, you said Jesus definitely ate meat. I've never yeah. heard this before. Yeah, the Passover lamb. So there he is at the Last Supper. Oh, right. Passover we don't have, lamb. Yeah, we don't have the menu from that meal. We know there was bread there and wine, but, but we know the Passover always involved, uh, and it, not, not just any lamb, it had to be an, a perfect lamb that was slaughtered, you know, in, in remembrance of the Passover back, back before Exodus. Um, when the, the archangel came and killed all the firstborn, uh, except in the houses where they painted the blood of the lamb over the doorway. So that, that's the Passover. And yeah, there's, um, it, again, it doesn't say what the menu was. And we don't have a passage where it says, and Jesus took a fork full of lamb and stuffed it in his mouth. We don't have that. But, but we just assume Jesus observed all of the rules, all of them, even the ones he disagreed with, right? Like he, he was very observant of all of the customs. So he, we know he was circumcised, even though it doesn't say that anywhere. Um, and, and we know he was faithful. He was, you know, didn't mess around. And it, it, we know all these things. So, yeah, the, the Passover lamb, all of them ate Passover lamb, uh, all of the, Jesus and his disciples at that dinner. One thing I thought of, as soon as you said that, I, I, what came to, to mind was, I, I think it was the Last Supper, right, where he says, uh, "Drink this wine, for it's my blood," and 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 have what is he says, "You should eat me like I'm bread," or so, I yeah, don't know this, the this, exact. This bread is my flesh. Yeah. Ah, oh, this bread is my flesh, right? Yeah. The, the, now, the wine is blood. Yeah. I I just I thought it was so interesting because it's like I I saw him eating meat, but then he was offering to the disciples wine and bread. So maybe maybe it's to to show that all three are required, or I don't know. Well, the now to be fair, the meat is an Old Testament custom, and then for the first time, uh, see before that we had the showbread. The showbread was in the temple, but it was not eaten; only the priests ate it. So here we have Jesus breaking bread. He's kind of changing that tradition. It's not, he's not breaking the showbread that you, it was called showbread because it was sort of on display. It was like display bread. And of course, David ate it once because his troops were hungry and there was, that was an exception to the rule. But yeah, it, to be fair, what's going on here is he's, he's creating a new tradition. And again, I already said, he, he doesn't make meat part of that tradition. It's not explicit. But we know he ate it there. But yeah, to, to, for the communion, it's it's the, the the bread is his flesh and the wine is his blood. And then you get into all the arguments over the centuries. Is it literally does does the wine literally transubstantiate when the priest blesses it? And all these people argue. Um, but you're you're right. He does not change the he does not change the tradition of the meat. He doesn't even mention it. So I I don't think. I, I would put it this way. Um, yeah, you, you have to eat the bread 
that's the flesh of Jesus, and you drink the wine, that's his blood, if you're a Christian, even if you're not Catholic, right? Um, and you don't have to eat the meat. What we know from the Passover supper, the last supper with Jesus, is he did eat meat, so you can eat it if you want to. That's what I would take from it. Uh, you have to eat the bread, and you have to drink the wine, even if you're a kid, right? In our church, they have grape juice. So you have to, you have to partake of that. <laughs> but the, the lamb is optional, but no one can say Jesus was a vegetarian. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. Mm, that makes sense. And that explains recent history very well, I think. Um, like, like there's never been a huge vegetarian push inside Christian. Well, actually, in little pockets there are, I've, I've heard. There's some vegan, um, like, Christian priests that, that do some ceremonies and stuff. But I've heard of it. You're right. But it's, it's so minor that, that I don't think either of us could cite a, the name of a group that's practicing it. But I have heard of it. And, and then you have the, um, the, what do they call them? Well, it's an oxymoron. They're called Old Testament Christians. Now, you can't be an old <laughs> right? But they follow a lot of the dietary laws of the Jews. And so another word for an Old Testament Christian might be a Judaizing Christian, which is more of an insult. And either way, fine. <laughs> if they, if they want to do that, they want to follow the dietary laws, fine. It, it can't hurt. Uh, but, but yeah, maybe, that, maybe that's where you see some of that coming in. Uh, but again, the, the Jews were never really never really vegetarian, not known for it. Um, but, but you do see that within some Christian sects. They're, they're trying to go back. And if they go back far enough, Alex, like I said, in the Garden of Eden, well, there was no meat. Nothing died. There was no cruelty. And uh, so the, the, there was certain trees. We don't know what they are, but those trees were for our protein. Those were for our meat. Mm. So maybe, maybe some Christians are going that far back. Could be. Um, for me, actually, one of the most convincing arguments for vegetarianism is actually our, our body. It's mm -hmm. not the Bhagavad Gita. It's not science. It's, it's neither. It's just look at our teeth. Look at our intestinal tract. We are clearly omnivores. We're definitely not carnivores. Yeah. We're definitely not pure herbivores either. We're definitely omnivores, mm -hmm. but we are, we're like, we're like monkeys, like yeah. we're really good at eating fruit and nuts and you get fat from the, the nuts and plenty of vitamins, nutrients from the fruits and stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I would say this. you're absolutely right. We're definitely omnivores. So um, like a, a carnivorous animal, like a dog, its digestive system is only three times its body length because it's, mm so highly acidic. That's why dogs don't even chew their food. They just rip and tear. They'll swallow chunks of food. Um, and then their digestive juices take care of it. Whereas a cow, I think it's something like 20 times their body length. And they have four stomachs. Well, we're right in between. We're like, I think it's yeah. 11 times. So yeah, you're absolutely right. We're, we're both. And we probably don't need meat every day. Like you said, like, like monkeys do eat meat. They will, <laughs> they will kill an intruder and, and eat it. Um, but it's rare, and, and yeah, we're, we're probably somewhere in between, biologically speaking. I have just one more question I wrote down, which we didn't sure. get to. Um, and maybe you don't know about this, that's fine. Um, but what about 
like in China, I'm definitely not confident about whatever, even, you know, whole foods that I'm buying. I'm not at all confident. I don't, there's no organic stickers or signs or anything in Chinese or any other language. Like they, I, I think in like very upscale places, like in Bangkok, it's starting to come about this like organic thing. But what about Europe? Do you think, or in some other area is, is inspecting maybe better over there or uh, yeah. do you think it's I, I from my experience because I, I inspected all USDA but I did do European and Japanese I say Japan has the best standard in the world for organics <laughs> that right from the start they had testing now when you want to test something you, you can test anything to see if it has prohibited chemicals that it's not supposed to have in it you know like Roundup um, but uh, the most important thing to test for in organics is the soil. See, the, the crop is just the byproduct. If your soil is healthy, that's what you really want to make. You want to make sure it's uh, toxin-free, but also that it has lots of microbial activity. Um, and that'll, in turn, give you more nutritious, bountiful crops. So, yeah, the, the Japanese always had a testing standard. As I mentioned to you earlier, it, was, it would be about 17... Or no, 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 it would be about 12 years in before the Americans adopted a testing standard. And remember, we talked about it's only on 5%. So the, the Japanese want everything tested. Uh, God bless them for that. It's the best standard. But they don't export anything, right? Because they can barely feed themselves. <laughs> yeah, so you're not going to find. But now to Europe, Europe is somewhere in between. They do require testing. They always did. Not as stringently wow. as the Japanese. Uh, but not as lackadaisically as the Americans and, and the Canadians, I'm ashamed to say. Canada has the worst standard, the worst. There's not even, in the American standard, before Miles McAvoy brought in the, it's called the 5% rule, that you have to test 5% of your clients. Before that, at least there was verbiage in the American standard about testing. Everyone just ignored it because it didn't tell you how, how much you have to do until Miles McAvoy came in with the 5% rule. Canada has no mention. The word test, analyze, laboratory, sample, those words don't exist in the And Canada is an agricultural nation. I'm so ashamed of that. I can safely say Japan has the best standard. Canada has the worst. Wow. That's... Um... I, it doesn't surprise me that Japan is the best because they love standards. You know, yeah. they love... They they just that's their favorite thing is getting a, a harsh standard and just like religiously going at it twenty four seven. Yeah, yeah, they they do things right. They they I I, they, I think they were yeah. building cars as well as the Germans right after World War Two. I don't know, it wasn't really till now that you see luxury Japanese cars competing with BMW. But I I think they were always in the game on electronics, cameras, cars, whatever. Yeah, and same for food. It's just that we don't, unless you get a, a little package of chips, you know, at, at, a, at a foreign food store, you really don't get any food from Japan. Or if you go to a really high-end sushi bar, right, they'll, right. they'll import the, the tuna from Japan. But other than that, yeah, we really get, we get no Japanese food in our diet. But you're right, they have the highest standards on all their food including their organic food, definitely. Mm, very nice. Um, there was one, uh, 
really moving video I saw. This is a Catholic priest, I think somewhere in America. He had like three strokes. And, um, you know, so he was just thinking, what do I do? And he decided to just go full vegan, whole food, plant-based, etc. And then, and that did it. He didn't have a stroke again. And I think at some point after that, he said the Holy Spirit actually came to him for the first time. And he he realized that, like, especially as a priest, it's like, how can I, how can I or anyone expect God to come into this body, this temple of mine, when there's flesh circulating around of, you know, yeah. animals, innocent life and all this stuff. Um, I thought that was so cool. I shared it on Facebook. No one saw it. No one liked it. <laughs> well, I, I like that even though I eat meat. And the only thing I would... I would change in it. It's it's it wasn't just that he that he had meat flowing in him, but he had cruel meat. I mean, there's yeah, nothing worse yeah. than, the, than the life of a battery chicken or a, or a a pig raised in a barn. They never see daylight. They never never mind seeing dirt or grass under their feet. They never see the sun. And you know, the sun isn't just a pretty thing. It gives us vitamin D through our skin. So these animals are are cruelly raised, and even an innocent person who doesn't care or know, uh, they, they innocently buy a package of chicken at the store, and they take it home, cut it up, and feed it to their kids. They don't realize, but they're, they're partaking in that cruelty. Uh, of course, I think, I think God will forgive them, uh, but they, they are partaking in it. And, and so you want to find, find humane sources of meat. But, but again, don't just because it says humane on the label, if you're at Whole Foods or Walmart, that doesn't mean any. You got to find the farmer. You know, you got to find the farmer. Yes, exactly. Going full circle back to uh, the first good point we made. Wow. So we're right around two hours. <laughs> oh, Alex, I didn't. I didn't realize. Yeah, I. I thought we were coming up on an hour. <laughs> good, good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very good stuff. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I guess at the moment I I don't have anything else. Um, can I can I ask you one other question? Why are you going sure, to sure. like Lithuania? Do you know the language? Do you have roots there? <laughs> it sounds like you know people there already. Yeah, so one of my best friends lives there, and uh, he beckoned me. He said, "You got to come here," and I said, "Well, really? Okay, sure." So the last summer break, I went there, and. It was really, this has never happened before, I think. I was 50-50 between moving there permanently or continuing w one more year in China. And it was just before I left, like a couple weeks before I got on the plane, they suckered me into another contract here. But um, I, I was right. As soon as I got there, I was like, okay, this is an excellent place. It's super cheap. Yes. Like you get you you get the top level quality dairy food what, yeah. everything there the restaurants kind of suck actually but you know if you're buying food and making it yourself you know the train is a little slow there's yeah. little small things like that but it's it's gorgeous and they have internet yeah they have super yeah. fast internet yeah there it's you like go. They, you have yeah. all the same modern things yeah. but Oh my God! I stayed out at his uh, garden house. Um, I've never seen so many stars in the sky. It literally oh, yeah. scared me. Yeah. I I could see that the milk in the Milky Way, yeah. and 
I was I was literally scared. I yeah. I don't know how to describe it. I was <laughs> yeah, because this is like a very rural area. Thought yeah. maybe some animal would like jump on me while I was in this trance. Yeah, it's like I couldn't move. Yeah, it's unbelievable. That's why they have they have no idea how many stars there are. All they have is estimates, and they keep changing them. And funny <laughs> when when there's power outages, like in cities like New York or or in Canada in Toronto, there have been major power outages. People will call 911 because they look up at the sky and they think, what the hell is that? And they call 911. And the 911 says, what's your emergency? He says, is there something going on in the sky? At least you realize, well, that's, that's just the way the sky is supposed to look. But imagine people born and raised in like New York, never been out of New York, let alone out to the country. And yeah, it blows them away. It's, it's a psychological impact. And yeah, it sounds like you, my wife and I are even thinking, of uh, taking our kids and, and going, because we heard um, you, you have all these farmers that are getting kicked out of Africa, and well, Putin's taking them, and he'll give them a farm and say, what, do you need a tractor? Sure, we'll do, because he, he, he recognizes a good farmer when he sees one, and wow. uh, yeah, and, and so there you are sort of in that, that frame, and you mentioned the most important thing, Alex, the, it's, it's cheap, like, like there's no way mm. farmland should be $20,000 an acre, even here in Texas, where it's five thousand an acre, that's that's an inflated price, and so that's that that goes into the that 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 destroys farming. That destroys the backbone of the family farm sooner or later, and you get this industrial model. So sounds like there's still a lot of uh, grassroots kind of family family uh, communities there. Yeah, the Baltic region is very, very interesting. It's it seems to have like this little like economic um, uh, wall, I guess you could say, around it, where um, uh, it's it's just expensive enough where it's a little difficult to live there for most Europeans, but it's also just boring enough where <laughs> like so no one wants to go there, oh, but yeah. but it's still it's it's still cheap enough. Like I was looking at apartments uh, when I went there, you know, 15,000 euros, 10,000, 20,000, whatever, like, and I can say I I have a home. That'd be the Wait. first time in my life I can say that. To buy it? Yeah. Oh, I thought you meant, at first I thought you meant rent, and I thought, well, that sounds no. like Manhattan prices, but wow, you can buy it? So, you can buy an apartment for okay, fifteen thousand so, euros. Okay, so go many, there. Many places. Yeah. Buy an apartment. Buy an apartment. But you, your plan has to be what you said earlier to get out and get a piece of land. But but you you, you don't want to do that. That's that's too big a leap. Move into whatever town or community. Get an apartment. Get settled, and then start taking day trips, looking for a good place to buy five or ten acres, and and then sell the apartment and move out and and yeah i'll i'll be jealous <laughs> you'll you'll be sitting pretty yeah um you also mentioned uh about uh what was it what was the word you used like background roots or something like i also have roots there almost oh, yeah, all yeah. of my all all of my ancestors are from lithuania oh, um, yeah. all, almost all of them so my last name campanella is sicilian so yeah. my my father's father's father, you know, was yeah. Campanella, Sicilian. But almost everyone else is uh, Eastern European Jew. Right. <laughs> that, that's my blood. Yeah. And uh, 
It's very interesting also that I, I came to uh, Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita because the leaders in this movement are the same as me. They have their, you know, Eastern European Jewish Americans. Oh, they all yeah. immigrated. They all immigrated at the same time. You know, by leaders, I mean, I'm talking about these swamis around yes. your age, like uh, Radhanath Swami and some others. But uh, it's, it's a... I wanted to talk to, with Dr. Jones about that because it seems like this is like the, the flip side of the Jewish revolutionary spirit where you have yeah. this like with, you know, dare I say the good Jews, you know, mm -hmm. who like they're because they know what they're missing and they and they desire it so much more. They're ready to just cling down and, and just, you know, seize God if that if I dare say yeah. that. You yeah. Know? Now, is, is, and, and does that exist where you're going in Lithuania? Are there like, I don't know, temples or groups of people yeah. you can, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, awesome. It's a huge thing. Yeah. Plus, yeah. plus there's obviously a large Christian community. And even if you're not part of it, well, those are, those are good neighbors, right? Yes, they're very good neighbors. <laughs> that's another thing I loved about uh, Vilnius, the capital city there. Going to these cathedrals oh, shocked yeah. me shocked yeah. me. I mean, even in America, I'd never been into a church. Maybe one time I just like peered in. But these cathedrals, I felt my blood. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, um, mostly, I guess, the Sicilian blood. <laughs> but uh, um, I just, I've always had this like, uh, I've always felt European. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't click until I was in one of those cathedrals. And I was like, okay, I get it. This yeah. is like where I come from. This is who I am. This is and and I and I'm still thinking in my head like I would rather go there and just live and die with Europe mm -hmm. than have a rich life in China, which is what I have. I have a really nice salary here, or an, a miserable life in America, which is a lot of what I've had over there. So uh, I think uh, the Baltics are calling me back home. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um... And if self-sufficiency, like farming or gardening, is part of it, that'll, that'll literally connect you to your roots, to your, you know, <laughs> whether it's Sicilian or, or Jewish or the Latvian, whatever your background, all those, all those people farmed. They all did. So mm. you'll, you'll be reconnected. Again, I'm, uh, I'm envious. Awesome. Yeah, You're well, still wondering? Yeah, finish your contract and go. Yeah, I can't wait. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, awesome. um, the the there's a like I said, I have a really nice salary here. It's a very cushy life, cushy job. I work like ten hours a week. Oh yeah, <laughs> nice. It's it's so easy, and I get yeah. as a classroom teacher, I get around like eighty or ninety U.S. dollars an hour. Wow. As as nice. as a middle school English teacher. Wow, nice. That's, yeah, so I'm good. You can build up a nest egg, you know, so you have some some money. Now, when you so even if the land is way more productive than than I quoted, right? I said an acre per person. Well, you're gonna work when you get there. When you get out of the apartment and get out to your own land, you're gonna work. Never mind ten hours a week. In the su summer months, you're gonna work a hundred hours a week, but you won't know <laughs> you won't notice it, and you won't have an exercise bike. That's the dumbest yeah. thing ever. Can you imagine if you got off the plane in Lithuania and, and they unloaded a, 
a treadmill, they'd say, what the hell is that? Is that for grinding grain? What is that? And, no, I'm going to, I'm going to exercise. And you know, you'll get, as you already know, you're going to get your exercise in the real world and you won't even notice it. You, it won't, you, you, you'll sweat and you'll ache at the end of the day and you'll sleep like a baby. And oh. yeah, yeah. You, you won't even notice you're working 10 times as much. You'll feel like nothing. Oh, that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. You know, I, I'm glad you brought up exercise because I've always had this trouble. Like I can't exercise. Yeah. It feels, it feels so unnatural and so yeah. strange. Now when I'm doing like tennis or judo, judo is my favorite thing, but something like a game where I feel like there's like a, you know, like a sequential path I'm on, then it's yeah. okay. But just like, ooh, ooh, yeah. ooh, ooh. It's so dumb, but, but farming, yeah, farming would do it. Yeah, my my grandma. I grew up on the farm, and I was in that transition generation when a lot of people were leaving the farm, and myself included. And a lot of those people would drive into the city and go to the gym. Like <laughs> we, we were twenty minutes from the city, and my grandma used to say, "Go weed the garden." Like when you weed a garden, that's cardio, that's muscle, your your mm. you know your core strength, your midsection. You're you're gonna you're gonna feel it, and you're gonna feel great. And yeah, otherwise it's fake, right? It's all fake. All that exercise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very materialistic. Because, but, but besides health, why would you just do a bunch of burn a bunch of calories? Yeah. What's the end? What's the end goal for it? Is is so, is so you look good so you can attract a mate, right? Or like, what else is it? That's it. It's 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 getting a mate or getting healthy. There's no yeah. other reason to just do this. Yeah, and if you can find a way to do that in the real world, you know, like load, like pitching bales and stuff like that, it's it's real, and you'll be uh you'll you'll feel it's it's like. 10 times more effective on, on both of those things. <laughs> it's 10 times more effective in attracting a mate and being healthy and having a good heart. Health. <laughs> it's all, it's all better. Cause it, it, cause it's real. And, and but one last thing, Alex, um, a lot of, when they get, a lot of people, when they get out to the land, I mentioned this earlier, they go with, they start with the chickens. Maybe they get a pig or a goat. A lot of people like fainting goats. That's so stupid because they're never going to eat them, right? They're pets. But trust me, this will feel like, like it's too big. But trust me, all you need is one cow. That's it. Now, you can buy a little electric milker because there's no way you'll, you'll milk her. You have to milk her twice a day every day. And there's no days off. If, if, you, if you're going to take a day off to go to the movies, you've got to get the neighbor to come over and milk her. Um, you will, from one cow, you'll have more milk than you'll ever need. You can make curds. That's an easy way to make cheese, to oh, make protein. Yeah. If, you know, making actual cheese is, is hard, but you, you could learn that. But curds and yogurt, ah, any idiot can make those. You just, you just follow a few steps and put them in the fridge, mm -hmm. and there you go. And, and, oh, and mozzarella cheese, that's the easiest cheese to make. That you can make in a few days. You don't have to wait a month, like, to make cheddar. Um, so yeah, one cow, that's all you need. Forget everything else. Forget the backyard. I mean, if you want some chickens to have eggs, fine, but you're, you're never going to eat a goat. You're never going to shear a sheep, you know, um, all these things. People are so scared. They, they think getting a cow is like too much, but it's everything. It's everything you need in one cow. 
but don't don't you need like a big plot of land for a cow? It's got to eat a lot of grass, right? Okay, well, again, using my formula, it'll be different where you are because it's more, um, it's one acre per cow-calf pair. Now, she needs to have a calf to give you milk. And she can go longer than a year before she needs to be impregnated again. She'll keep giving milk, but it'll eventually run out. You have to find a neighbor with a bull because you're, you're not going to keep a bull. You don't want to feed a bull just for one cow. Uh, but So you've got to get her pregnant Best to do it once a year, even if she'll go longer. You you want the calf to be born when you don't want the calf born in the dead of winter. So you, it's nine month gestation. You you backdate that, and that's when you bring a bull in, and or, or you can use artificial insemination. But I don't know if they have that in Lithuania. In any case, you got to get her pregnant once a year. And yeah, where I was from, remember, it's it's one acre per person which you sort of blew up because you're, you're, you're going to live on this much more productive land. So yeah, it, it's also here. It's one acre per cow, per cow-calf pair. And she'll raise that calf for, for a few months and then you wean the calf and sell it. Um, and, and, and you're going to make money. If, if it's a heifer, you'll, you'll get 10 times more money than if it's a little bull. No one wants the bull. You, you could keep it for yourself, fatten it up and eat it, but I know you don't, you don't want to do that. In any case, um, yeah, it's going to be much less. To answer your question, if you had the crummy land that I grew up on with six inches of topsoil, it would be one acre for that cow and her calf. And so if you had five acres, that will leave you four acres for all your other stuff, your zucchini and, and, and root crops and everything. So yeah, and, and if it's, it's probably going to be less, you know, you, you, you might not even have pasture. You, you might your whole farm might be really, really good land. So you won't set aside a pasture for her. You'll rotate her around the farm so she can eat and poop where you have the zucchini growing and you just finished harvesting it. You can move her in there as long as she, you know, you, you can have mobile fencing or you can tether her. A lot of people think that's cruel. But anyway, yeah, you, you rotate her around. If you don't have a crummy piece of land, just rotate her around the whole farm and every day twice a day you go get her with your little electric milker or do it yourself and you'll have more milk than you'll know what to do with you'll be you'll be giving it away <laughs> yeah sounds good so misha thank you so much for talking with me this is great right. thanks alex thanks for having me god bless you man so i, I wish you the best on that uh, hope to talk to you before you go Hey, that sounds great, and uh, God bless you too. Is there anything you want to plug, a uh, website or anything? No, you know what? I pulled out of everything. I got rid of social media. I write for our, our illustrious friend, Dr. E. Michael Jones, so I, I always plug culturewars.com. I have nothing except you're, you're welcome to hand out my email to like-minded individuals, and my, my book on the organic industry is still available through Lulu, lulu.com, if you search my mm. name. But I don't promote it anymore. It's been nine years since I wrote, wrote it. And, um, yeah, I'm just, just trying to meet, meet good people. I, I don't have anything else to promote. <laughs> yeah, I'm not into the promoting game either. I just like learning, talking, teaching. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's better that way. And then maybe something in the future will, will come and, and you'll have a reason to, to promote something. But, yeah, you're... you're it sounds like you and I have the same approach. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. It's very laissez-faire and uh, honest. 
right? Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. you get to meet guys like Dr. E. Michael Jones, you know? Yeah, he's he's really cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good stuff. Well, best of luck, Alex. God bless you again. Thanks. You too, Misha. Okay. Talk to you later. Uh, talk to you later. Bye-bye.